Well, thank you, President Mary. Um, it's my pleasure today to introduce our guest speaker, Matthew Owen. And Matthew's going to be talking about the past and future of electricity in Australia. Uh, Matthew is the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Energy Council. Now, the Australian Energy Council is an industry body which represents uh, 21 major electricity or downstream gas producers. And they supply the majority of Australia's electricity and gas requirements. I think your customers uh, total more than 10 million premises, Matthew. So this is the industry that represents the, uh, you know, the source of energy for the country. Matthew is, has been the CEO of the Australian Energy Council since December 2015. And before that, he was CEO of the Electricity Supply Association of Australia. And before that, the CEO of the Clean Energy Council. So he's very well qualified and experienced in the topic he'll talk about today. So to please welcome Matthew Owen to the, to the podium. Thank you, Brian, and my thanks to the Rotary Club of Melbourne for your kind invitation to speak today. Um, uh, it's a vast subject and one that's, you know, it's interesting when you think about electricity, uh, we've all grown up with it basically being something that's ubiquitous in the background of our lives, and we've probably never had to think about it too much uh, until the last decade when it's suddenly become uh, a subject of great consideration, and, and my counsel is that probably will remain the case for the rest of our lives. I think electricity has changed uh, and it's no longer just a background issue. It will, its, its origins and its design will feature prominently throughout our lives. Um, in, in thinking about electricity, and most of us don't really think, you know, are, are new to this, uh, it's, I think it's useful to go back and just remind ourselves quickly of the history of electricity because I, mean, I, I never really, until I till recently never really thought where this came from and assumes Thomas Edison had something to do with it and, and that was it. Um, so the word electricity comes from the Greek and the, the, the loose thread that enabled human uh, endeavour to discover electricity was static electricity. And um, the Greeks discovered, the Greek scientists and philosophers discovered you could rub certain, you could rub, rub amber with cloth and you created this attraction to various feathers and other, other things around the place. Uh, and so there was a, a, a physicist in 1600, uh, William Gilbert, who picked this up and, and found other materials could also be used for this. And so he coined the term uh, elect, um, uh, electricus, which is derived from the Greek for amber. And that's where the words come from. So for the next, you know, the history of electricity, therefore, the research of it really goes for 300 years. And there is no one, uh, one person who developed or invented electricity. It's the it is the cumulative work of hundreds of individuals through that 300-year period. Um, the most probably significant and first key breakthrough, well, I, I should preface that by until about 1800, it was largely a novelty. So uh, uh, at sideshows and fairs and carnivals, people developed static electricity generators and would zap each other and they'd zap dead animals and they'd zap live animals and they, it was used for sort of for entertainment and for pseudo-medical applications. Uh, it wasn't until about 1800 
Alessandro Volta, um, so one of these, you know, many of these names that now are in the, the DNA of the industry, invented the world's first battery. And so basically, at the time, the view was either that electricity came from life forces or it was some kind of liquid, but they were experimenting with different metals and, the, and dead frogs' legs. And they discovered that certain different metals created a current put together. So Volta basically stacked some silver and some copper and zinc discs together, and that was the world's first battery. That was the moment when we could start utilising electricity. And from that, a whole range of scientific research broke through because they could control the current that flowed from those batteries that were invented and different chemical batteries were developed through that uh, 19th century. Um, so it wasn't really... that was. And it's important today when we talk about batteries being a sort of a, a breakthrough technology, that battery technology is more than 200 years old. And in fact, batteries preceded the development of modern gen of generators by about 100 years. Uh, so it's always useful to remember these things. Um, the next big step forwards was the development of generation, and that was the relationship between magnetism and electricity. And that was developed by a Dane, Hans Christian Orsted, in 1821, and then uh, 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 basically, Michael Faraday, an Englishman, reversed that, the, the discovery of that relationship so that generation technology could be developed. And through the 19th century, generators were built. It's useful to know, too, that if you think about it in the simple terms, uh, a, a, a conventional generator is basically a device that transfers physical energy into electrical energy, and a motor, electrical motor, is the same technology operating in reverse. So it decodes it back into physical energy. Uh, and that's important when we think about the way the modern electricity grid works because there's a thing that we call in the industry inertia, and that is the stabilising effect of these physical generators at one end of the grid and the electric motors at the other end of the grid. And their sheer operation maintains and helps us to maintain um, frequency and voltage at levels so that we can have a, a stable grid running safely. And that's one of the big challenges in the 21st century as we move to technologies that don't provide that physical stability as to how we replace it. So then the interesting, the next sort of was what do you, you've got this ability to produce this electricity and it's used for scientific experiments. So a lot of metals were discovered using electricity. What next? The first use for electricity was Morse code. Um, so you had, so you could run cable, it was quickly discovered you could run cables and then you could therefore interfere with the, the very weak signal which, which was sufficient and you could tap on it and, and of course Morse was the inventor of the coding system, there were many before him but he worked it out uh, and once that was developed then wires were strung between cities and eventually all over the world and Australia was connected to the rest of the world using uh, the telegraph in, in 1872. Burke and Wills were infamously part of this discovery because each state in Australia wanted to be connected first because it was a view that, that each, well, having the telegraph going into your city was going to be a major source of investment and development and the Victorian government commissioned Burke and Wills to develop a telegraph line if they could from Melbourne through Menindee and up to the Gulf of Carpentaria because the wire was coming in through the island of Java and everyone wanted to, their scheme to be the one that connected into Java. Uh, those pesky South Australians succeeded by a telegraph line which went up through Adelaide, through Alice Springs and to Darwin, which at that time was a handful of people living on the edge of the coast. Um, so that, 
useful. That was followed by the telephone, which was using the same technology, but basically applying it to, for more value-added purposes. And that's where people like Thomas Edison came in, because he invented ways of making the telephone work more effectively. So it's, it's had an interesting potted history. Tele Edison, in, if you like, invented the grid. So in, about, in the late um, 1880s, he built the first DC grid through New York. Um, at the time, power stations were built pretty much because of the, 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 sort of the weak technology. Power stations had to be built in the middle of the grid. You couldn't remote, locate them remotely. The power wasn't sufficiently strong, and indeed it leaked regularly. So when it rained in New York in his grid, all the lights went out because the water effectively disrupted the supply of current so that uh, there was no electricity. And that, that got better. So the next and final important breakthrough was the transformer. And the transformer, put simply, was the ability to change voltages up to transmit it over long distances and then bring it back down uh, for household, for safe use in households and businesses and to vary voltages. And that was, that was enabling AC current. So this sort of, you may have heard of this sort of fight between Edison and, and um, uh, Nikola Tesla regarding uh, AC versus DC. It really wasn't a contest. AC was going to win because of its ability to be far more versatile in supplying electricity at different voltages over different distances. With all that in place, it was then Australia's turn to adapt that technology. And really, we only saw grids entering Australia at the very end of the 19th century and through the 20th century. A combination of, of councils and entrepreneurs installing the first power station built uh, in Australia was built on Spencer Street. Uh, there's now an apartment building there. It was demolished in 2007 as one of, an ageing power station, but it was the first uh, large-scale generator in Australia. And through the start of the 20th century, uh, communities were electrified fairly aggressively, and quickly state governments realised this was a crucial technology. This enabled economies to develop very quickly. It, was, it provided great benefit, and, and Edison, of course, invented the incandescent light, so you could light households. It induced air quality, improved air quality, but it enabled an industry to develop very quickly. And so through the first half of the 20th century, each state government, respectively, basically took over, a national, and, and took over control of the electricity supply process and ran them as state utilities. So it's important, again, to realise that electricity wasn't invented and developed by state governments. It was taken over by state governments, and we're now moving back to a privately owned electricity system, and there are challenges in that process as well. So after World War II, and that's where it really starts to relate to us today, we saw an enormous scale up in the Australian economy. And, the scale, and if you look at the, the data on electricity demand and GDP, they're virtually linear. So as the economy grows, electricity demand grew with it. And in the post-war boom, there was a rapid expansion in the electricity grid in Australia. And each state uh, went and invested millions of dollars in building lots of new capacity. In Victoria, it was in the Latrobe Valley. In New South Wales, it was the Hunter Valley. Uh, outside of Brisbane and Queensland in the southeast, um, the only state which probably had a comparative advantage at that point was Tasmania, because they, their hydro schemes, which required scaling up, they weren't growing as fast, and they were sort of adapting the existing hydro system. So the power stations, the coal-fired generators, which anchored the Australian economy, were built through the 60s, 70s and 80s. And they're the power stations we're mostly still using today. And the challenges we face as those power stations reach the end of their working life and how we replace them. 
Uh, and so I, I get very frustrated. I've worked for the coal industry, I've worked for the renewables industry, I've worked for the, the electricity industry. I get very frustrated at the demonisation of any technology, but certainly coal and gas, because the Australian economy was built uh, on coal. Uh, at, the, at its peak, I think coal supplied 87% of electricity in Australia, uh, and that's declining now as it's being substituted for renewables and, and gas. So that was kind of, the, and that's one of the reasons why Australia had, you know, amongst the cheapest electricity prices in the world, that was true. Uh, we had, although I think that masks some of the challenges, we only have 24 million people living in, in the national electricity market on the east coast, you know, 22 million people living in, a, in the largest single sort of AC grid in the world. And that poses quite significant cost challenges which were masked by government investment in that infrastructure when it was first built, which are now being revealed. So there's a reset in the true cost of electricity supply in Australia uh, as a result of both seeing the true cost of that, that running that network and also as we see the cost of the inputs from coal being substituted to more expensive alternatives. And of course, that's all about climate change. Um, now, I, I'm not here to advocate for or against climate change. Uh, I've, I've lived with it as part of my sort of professional life for the last 20 years. Uh, I, as a, I was the environment writer at The Australian for a couple of years because I was a journal in my original life, and I've talked to scientists who work, uh, who, who are obviously climate, working on climate science. I've worked those who don't think it's true. Um, the change point on climate policy to me in Australia and globally was in 2006. And that was when the reinsurance industry started doing the actuarial risk tables on, on the risk of climate science being real and its potential consequences. And what they found was that even at very low likelihoods, at 10%, at 20%, the, the cost of them having to cover the insurance premiums of the effect of climate change was so significant that they could not but materially change the way that they, uh, they, they managed risk and therefore that flowed on to the financing and the banking sector beyond it. So really since 2006 you may have noticed the Business Council of Australia in that year came out and said we think we need to manage climate risk. And most global businesses, most of the blue chip companies in the US at the same year said we are now managing climate because they got the same advice from their insurance um, providers, which was that this is something a risk you have to manage. Whether you think it's true or not, it's irrelevant. It's, it's a, risk, a risk management process. And that's been the case ever since. So the electricity sector in Australia has, since 2006, been asking for some kind of significant price or climate policy to unite energy and climate in Australia. And that's not because this industry has found the environment or found religion, it's because we can't build the new assets we need without that clarity and without monetising that risk which exists. And so we don't mind whether it's a cap and trade scheme, uh, whether it's a baseline and credit scheme, or you can either, two, there's one of two ways of managing that risk, you either regulate it or you price it. Uh, we prefer pricing because we prefer markets to solve problems rather than governments dictating solutions uh, with the best endeavours and probably getting it wrong more than right. Um, but we need something. And that's become acute over the last 11 years as we've tried to build and invest to replace the ageing fleet of coal-fired generators which run the east coast of Australia uh, in a diminishing fashion. And that debate is, I, I probably won't bore you with that, but that debate has been you know, active since 2000 probably since 2006, 2007. Um, you may recall that uh, John Howard moved to introduce or look at emissions trading in 2006 before the 2007 election. Uh, Kevin Rudd infamously kind of came out with a fairly aggressive mandate. Prior to that, both major parties were relatively um, less interested in climate policy. It hadn't, it hadn't had that cut through. 
And the cut through in 2006 coincided, I would argue, not with Al Gore's infamous movie uh, of dubious accuracy at the, in that year, but uh, it was the millennial drought. And uh, I was at the Australian that year, and I'm pretty convinced that most Australians thought the climate change was happening to them right now. And that changed the politics on this issue in a way that we've not really seen before. So when the dam levels in Melbourne fell to below 25% and water restrictions were so severe that gardens began to die, uh, the public demanded immediate action. And the public tend to demand immediate action on issues when they're materially affecting them. And so that's why we had this sort of sweeping move to um, acting on climate policy. And I think we moved too fast. I think Kevin Rudd uh, really had no particular experience in this issue. He took some advice from a handful of people. He instituted a suite of policies, you might recall, the pink bats uh, issue where he, he decided to materially, one of the sensible things was why don't we make our houses more efficient um, and use less energy. And the obvious way to do that is to insulate the 50% of Australian households that didn't have it. Now, uh, Rudd wanted that done within 12 months and there wasn't enough insulation in Australia to fill the houses that were empty at that time. So. Um, the effect of that was that there were technologies going into households which weren't safe and, and as we discovered there were lots of faulty wiring in, in some of the stock of Australia's households and we had fatalities caused from that rapid scale up. It's, it's remarkable that something as simple and benign as home insulation could become the political killer that it became in, in that year and it says a lot about the sort of the immaturity of the discussion in that year. Um, the other thing that happened, one of the, well, there are many, but one thing I thought was interesting was the phenomenon of solar PV in Australia. And you may recall there'd been quite generous subsidies for solar PV. Solar, solar PV technology, uh, as I was explaining just at lunch, it was invented in the 1830s by a French chemist who had nowhere to use it. The idea that photons hitting uh, certain types of silicon and carbon could activate a current. Um, it was developed by NASA in the 70s to power Skylab and it was then picked up by telecom and other, other uh, businesses who wanted to use it to power remote locations. So it was still an expensive technology in the 2000s, um, but falling in cost. Um, there were, when subsidies were sort of scaled up in that election, um, it coincided with the tipping point where the price of solar started to fall and we saw this incredible expansion uh, in the take-up of rooftop PV. In 2007 there were 700 households with PV on their roofs in Australia. Now there are 1.6 million. Uh, and there is nowhere else in the, on the planet that is remotely close to those numbers. So we have this curious phenomenon where we are the world leaders in installing PV on our roofs rather than sort of industrial scale solar applications. Uh, and the uptake of that has been most aggressive in, uh, in, not in sort of Turak or in affluent suburbs, but in mortgage belt and swinging electorate suburbs. So politicians quickly realised that standing in the way of the deploy of rooftop PV was politically dangerous as those households um, wanted to access lower energy costs and also enjoy that technology. So we've had that sort of scale up rapidly and that's materially affected the way the grid has, the grid wasn't designed to run two ways basically. So we have, uh, we have PV trying to get on uh, and electrons trying to get onto the grid in parts where there's so much power coming onto the grid on sunny winter days in parts of Brisbane, uh, the grid's not fat enough to, be to get all those electrons uh, into the market. 
So this, we've had this haphazard way of dealing with this, which has been led by politics rather than, 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 than sort of substantive policy. We're the only economy in the world which has managed to introduce a carbon price and then repeal it um, three years later, which uh, that's a world first as well. And, and I, I mean, this is the frustration I, I would observe of something which is as substantive and important as electricity becoming a political issue. And we are still trying to escape this in the same way that I would liken it to monetary policy. You know, I think floating the Australian dollar and having an independent reserve bank are important institutional arrangements. I think having an electricity system and energy policy is also an institutional arrangement which should be outside of the political debate. And I don't think we're well served by this discussion being politicised in the way it is. So where does that leave us? Where, where are we looking forwards to? Um, a few things. First of all, Australia is more challenged, I would argue, than any other developed country in the world in facing the risk of climate change. And that's because we have a very coal, a very carbon intense grid, which we have to decarbonise. Uh, and, and we have to do it without the ability to interconnect to other grids. So we've, we have to do it on our own. Uh, and that means that we're trying to replace coal-fired generators. The price of new build now for wind and solar backed by gas is cheaper than building new coal. So my member businesses aren't, and we've said this in the Australia and the Financial Review for the last two years, they're not remotely interested in building new coal-fired power stations. And that's not because of any ideological bent. It's because a coal-fired generator has a 50-year life and no bank will lend the money anywhere near the 50-year term of that asset. So. By contrast, um, we can build renewables and we'll build those technologies. Um, batteries will back up the new grid, uh, but the challenge with batteries is going to be they're not as simple as PV. So batteries have a lot of rare and scarce materials in them. If you want to look at the, the challenges of, P, of batteries, look at the cobalt price. It's increased. The price of cobalt is a key input in lithium-ion batteries. It's quadrupled in the last four years. Volkswagen, Apple. Uh, BMW are all securing 10-year contracts on cobalt because they can see a huge scarcity of cobalt coming. So this challenge is not as simple as a few batteries and some renewables and everything works the same as before. Um, the last point is the big challenge we really face is not right now, it's not the closure of the Liddell power station, but it is in the mid-20s. In the mid-20s, we start to look at the closure of a large number of coal-fired generators by the end of the 20s and the, and the, and the 2030s. And that's when we'll have to have a serious conversation about how we power Australia through the 21st century. And right now, I can't tell you the answer to what that conversation will be, but whether or not there's confidence in the suite of renewable and supporting technologies to keep going past that 50% threshold that places like South Australia are at, or whether we have to talk about things like nuclear power and other firm technologies that replicate the stability of the grid we've used in the 20th century. Thank you.